Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes filles et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. And I think it can be said that uh, Mike and I are two people who are not overly opposed to a good party. So when somebody reached out to me and suggested that I contact an author who is writing about the party culture in French North America, I was very intrigued. And thankfully, I was able to connect with Michael Dumont, a researcher and historian who has been writing on the history of celebrations among the French North American people in the 18th and 19th centuries. So I'm very interested to hear what Mikhail has to say. So Mikhail Dumont, welcome to the French Canadian Legacy Podcast. Thank you very much. My pleasure to be here with you. So first of all, what's your story? So where are you from and how did you get to writing about festivals in North America? Yeah, well, I'm from the suburbs around Montreal. I've been doing history uh, since I was uh, a little kid. I was always interested in that. Um, I was doing master in France, actually. And while I was over there, my subject for my, my thesis were, for my master was uh, the human experience, sorry, the human sure. experience of the crossing, of the transatlantic crossing. Gotcha. And while I was do doing that over there, I was listening to music of, uh, of Christmas music, and I was remembering all my, like, parties when my childhood sure uh, and I was wondering what is the history of that party uh, how people were celebrating Christmas uh, with the time of my grandparents and sure. even earlier so I decided to look at if this subject was uh, already researched and if there was any book or paper on this and uh, my biggest surprise uh, there was none actually there was not a lot of research on that subject in North America, in French North America. So I decided to do my PhD, my doctoral thesis on that subject, and I found a, a very uh, good uh, supervisor uh, at the Université de Montréal. And this is how everything started, just listening to Christmas music. <laughs> That's an awesome story. I love this. In your work, you focus on a number of very specific regions. I think it's four specific regions. And maybe you could tell us what those regions were and why you chose those specific areas. Yeah, uh, so the four regions are uh, before mainly the San Andreas Valley. As you all know, this is uh, the cradle of French-Canadian civilization in North America. So this is uh, very easy to start with. it. Uh, and then I wanted to compare the San Andreas Valley in a North American context. So I wanted to do some transnational history, which is not very popular uh, because some people always focus on uh, nowadays uh, nations. Uh, so there were many French people at the time in the 18th and 19th centuries and other regions of were, um, I decided to insist on three other regions. Uh, there were people, for example, in Acadia, uh, but they were deported in, in 1755. So they were uh, scattered everywhere in the in sure. the continent, so I decided to avoid that region because it was too difficult gotcha. uh, to, to, to know where the people were. So I decided to take three regions, three other regions where you had people in the countryside uh, who were sedentary and who were living on the land for a good period of time, for a big span of time. 
So those regions came very easily afterwards. So the, the second region is the uh, Detroit region, and it's a French word, we, we say Detroit, which okay. means in English the Strait. Uh, so this is the river between uh, Lake Sinclair and Lake Erie, uh, where we all know about. It was founded by the French at the, in 1701. So it was founded by an, a, man, a, a man, sorry, named Cadillac. So this is why the car is named after him. Yeah. Um, so there were many French people in that area uh, who were tilling the land. Well, many. They were like few thousands compared to the St. Louis Valley. It's not much, but still, there were many. There were yeah, of course. Interesting to to study. There were also a region called the Illinois Country. It's the in uh, the Mississippi Valley around the, the city of St. Louis. Uh, St. Louis was founded by French people after the name of Louis uh, XV, the king of France, back in the 18th century. So there were many French villages around that region. So again, a few thousand people. And also, they, as you uh, maybe all know, there were people in Louisiana, and many thousands of French-speaking people in Louisiana. And I focus um, mainly on the Acadians, uh, who, uh, after the deportations, a few thousands of them uh, at the end of the 1760s decided to establish themselves in the bayou out of, uh, I would say, in the southeast of nowadays uh, Louisiana and also around the uh, Mississippi River up, um, up north of uh, New Orleans. So those are the main regions that I decided to focus on because they were, as I said before, a sedentary people and they were speaking French for a big period of time uh, before uh, the, the, the American regions, they, be, they, they became uh, assimilated. So between the end of the 18th century and the first half of the 19th century, I could compare those people uh, with the St. Lawrence Valley. Bed. So that's why I decided to, to focus on those four regions. There were other people speaking French out west, uh, but most of them were, I would say, Métis. Uh, so I really wanted to focus on French origin uh, people to see how this culture evolved over period of 100 years. Sure. And one thing that kind of struck me is that these places that you're describing, it seems it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, but you seem to be focusing a lot on very rural population. Uh, yes. So so I'm curious, uh, Was it, would the story that you told have been different had you included, say, Montreal or Quebec City yeah, in this story? Totally. Yeah. Actually, I decided to focus also on the countryside uh, because there were more studies uh, of celebration in the cities. For example, Montreal, Quebec City, uh, some historians focused on uh, how people of, of uh, I would say, the bourgeoisie or the novelty were celebrating in the 18th, 19th century. And also in New Orleans is a big, big place where you have many historians who uh, dealt with the, 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 the carnival, the Mardi Gras, what we call Shrove Tuesday in English, and all the balls, the massive balls that were taking place in that city. So I didn't want to take a subject which was already a lot uh, covered by many other historians. And I wanted to look at people who were who did not let leave a lot of traces, but who were very interested in, in, in sorry, interesting. And that's why I decided to focus on people on the countryside. Uh, and there are not many research, uh, researches on, on those people. So that's why I decided to focus on that. Gotcha. And you mentioned that you were looking at about a hundred year period. So it's like about, you know, 1770 to 1870. Why did you choose those hundred years? Because I have 
I had to focus on um, on populations who were living at the same time. So uh, 1770, this is the time that the Cayans started to be established in Louisiana. So gotcha. I couldn't start earlier, even though people in the St. Louis Valley were here since the 17th century and Detroit was since the 1750s and uh, uh, for the Illinois country it was the beginning of the 18th century. So I, I couldn't start earlier um, and I decided to stop in 1870. Um, this is quite the end of what we call the Civil War in the States, as you, as you, I'm sure you're you know and your uh, public yeah, notes. We might have heard uh, about that in school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also this is a time where the French-speaking population were getting very much assimilated to uh, the English-speaking uh, popula American population. So I, I had to focus only on people who were still speaking French. So that's why yeah, if I wanted to make sure that I could compare uh, similar cultures. So that's why I decided to step in 1870. Gotcha. And this... I mean, something you've alluded to already, this sounds like super interesting research, but I can't imagine it would be super easy. So what did you get for sources to oh. kind of give you a picture into, into telling this story? Yeah, this is always the biggest task of historians, um, finding sources, because uh, we don't invent anything. We don't create things. Right, uh, yeah. Based, uh, our all knowledge and our t uh, analysis on, on real sources that we need now then to critique criticize um, so first of all I really I look at uh, many hundreds of travels accounts and many also biographies uh, uh, of people who were visiting at the time or personal okay. letters of people who were living at the time that was I would say the biggest uh, source primary sources uh, that I used then I also look at the correspondence the letters of the priests who were writing to their bishops and the bishops then was answering to uh, the priests so those letters sometimes sure. when you have a local priest who's to, telling the bishop many many things about his uh, parish parishioners and was very sometimes interesting and he's giving many details so that was the second main source i was also looking at uh, novels of the time uh, written by um, some others uh, of 19th century who knew about those people who created stories but were basing their uh, stories and their knowledge of the population so also that was very interesting and finally I also look at um, what we call the uh, folklorist works of the end of the 19th century who at the beginning of the 20th century who were interviewing people who were very old at the time and who had lived uh, for example, in, who were born in the 1840s and who were still alive uh, in the 1890s or in 1900s, for example, and who were giving their memories of their childhood uh, sure. at the time. So basically those are the main uh, four primary sources I use uh, to have a look and to analyze celebration in North America. That's awesome. Now, in the first chapter, of your work, um, you take a look at weddings, uh, specifically yeah. up in Canada, and then the Louisianans of Acadian descent that you had talked mm -hmm. about earlier, you know, late 18th through mid 19th century. Why start with weddings? So why choose weddings? And then why those two specific locations if you're gonna talk about weddings? Uh, why starting with weddings? Uh, because weddings, compared to other celebrations, uh, encompasses uh, encompass a lot of different celebrations. Uh, dancing, for example, music, 
uh, food, everything that you find in big celebrations or in the weddings. So for this way, talk about many different aspects of, of dancing, for example, of music, and, and then it will be a good start for people to know more about those little subjects, sub, uh, like little subjects in a big subject. Um, so then when I was looking at other celebrations in the next chapters, uh, I, I didn't have to, again, describe how was the music at the time, how was dancing, and what kind of dancing. Right, gotcha. Yeah, so this is why weddings was a good start for me. I think it was a, I could give many details about celebrations at first, at first glance. Um, and then why in, uh, in Louisiana and the San Lorenzo Valley? Well, all my chapters, the subject and the celebration and the region uh, which is covered in the chapter uh, were decided by the length and the amount, uh, the number of sources I had. Very, that makes sense. Yeah. So I couldn't, I couldn't have. Like, I wanted to do a chapter, for example, on Easter or on Christmas. Sure. But I could not because I didn't have enough sources. So that's why I, I focused on weddings in, in San Lorenzo Valley and in Louisiana among the Acadians because I had a lot of sources, so I could co compare, criticize, and have a relevant picture of how those weddings were taking place and what roles they had in those societies. Our modern time, here in New England anyway, uh, when we think about a wedding, and I just went to one not that long ago, my sister, which is really cool, uh, we have, we have a, you know, you go, you have your ceremony first, either, you know, your, your official ceremony or your religious ceremony, and then you go ahead and afterwards you have your party with, you know, you sit down, you have a meal, then everybody does some dancing and a ton of drinking. If we had gone to a wedding in either the St. Lawrence Valley or in Louisiana, in the period you're studying, what what would it look like? What would we see it when we arrive? Yeah, it depends if you are at the end of the 18th century or in the middle of 19th century, because there were quite some differences actually. The start, the beginning of the wedding was quite similar uh, in both regions and whatever the time it was. So uh, people they gather um, in the morning uh, at the wife's house. <laughs> Her the wife's parents' house. First of all, the groom would come for the bride, um, so he gets the house, and then he the uh, the parents are giving their um, benediction. I would say I don't know if you okay. if that's a good word um, to uh, the couple, and then they leave. It's a convoy kind okay. of. All right. So in the San Lorenzo Valley, this convoy, this cortege, is kind of a procession of many uh, co uh, cars uh, with horses on it. So the, uh, the, the, the bride with her parent, for example, would be first, and, and then the groom with his uh, father would be last, and it will be all the um, people invited to, to the wedding who would be in the middle, and they would go one behind the other towards the church. In Louisiana, the Achaeans would do that, but they were walking because they didn't have enough money at the time to have horses. Gotcha. Um, and the horses were not very popular at the beginning. They were just moving most, mostly on, um, on the river. Uh, so uh, they had boats, canoes, for example, and they were walking most of the time. But in San Lorenzo Valley, horses were very popular. They were they were big number of horses. So then they would get to uh, the church. Uh, they had a celebration with uh, the priest. 
and then when they leave the church, the uh, the new couple would be together uh, in the same uh, cart uh, with their horses at the at the front of the procession. They would go back to the the bride's uh, parents' house, uh, okay. where the the celebration would start and where they would have the dinner, like uh, the lunch. Sure. Uh, it was a big big celebration. They would all, they they would have a lot of uh, different meals. Uh, mostly meat, uh, so they could kill, for example, uh, a pig, uh, chicken, uh, and they would. Uh, at the, in the north, uh, it was more pig and chickens, um, and in Acadia, uh, not in Acadia, sorry, in Louisiana, sure. uh, they had more uh, things from the south, so many uh, meals with corn, for example. Gotcha. And makes sense. There are many rituals also because this is. Um, at the time, the community had to accept and officialize the uh, the new couple to accept it. So there were always different rituals to make sure that they they uh, they show that now they are part of the community, but they cannot be accepted without having the the I would say the approval of, of the rest of the community. So the parents um, and also they would have like a specific place at the table. To, they will be in the middle and then you have all the people uh, just beside them and as you go towards the end of the table you have younger people so it was a big hierarchy to show that family was also uh, i would say uh, there was a social hierarchy in family for example sure. after lunch they would dance a lot and they would sing a lot there were many also um, songs related again to uh, the sadness of the bride to lose her to 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 lose her uh, her life with her parents, and then she would become uh, a married woman at the time. She was losing part of her life, part of her freedom, and she be because she was becoming um, uh, I would say not a husband, but the uh, the opposite. Uh, the wife. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> she was no just problem. becoming a wife. Uh, so there were many songs about that, and at dinner time uh, in the evening they would go to the uh, groom's parents house and then they would eat there for the sup for the dinner or the supper depending on how you call it uh, and it was uh, again big celebration over the night and in some places in the St. Lawrence Valley uh, you had people uh, who were not invited to um, the the wedding who in the evening were coming in a, from the different places in the village they were coming and it was becoming a bigger party. The crash of the wedding. That's awesome. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, they would call in French the survenants. So that means the revenants who were <laughs> coming to the, the party. And it was a big time for new couples also. It was uh, to, to get along to for courtship um, for people because they were uh, supervised by all the uh, elders of the, of the community. So that's a big place where you could uh, find uh, a new partner, for example. That's awesome. Now, you talked about how there's all kinds of, you know, music and dancing at these events. Who's playing the music? Is it the families that are playing the music? Do you hire somebody to play the music? No. Do people actually, tour the area? What's going on there? Yeah, um, usually you, you, you all, did not always have mu um, music instruments. Uh, when you did not have, people were just singing and they were dancing Along, uh, along the uh, the songs of the people, gotcha. uh, but uh, when they had music, because a lot of time, more 
19th century because people had more money and they could buy and they could make uh, and musical instruments. Um, but the main instrument at the time was the violin. Yeah. Um, the violin was the fiddle. Uh, there were many fiddlers in the French-speaking populations at the time in the countryside. In every region, many people who used to play the, the fiddle. And uh, in the San Rose Valley, there were many people in the countryside. Every, I would say every family had someone who could play the fiddle. That That's was awesome. uh, very important. And in, what also is important to mention is that in the South, in Louisiana, for example, in the Illinois country, well, nowadays uh, it's the, uh, the Illinois states in, the, in Missouri, uh, you had slaves also, uh, oh, yeah. and, and people, um, African-American uh, free of color uh, who were emancipated, who were uh, disenf disenfranchised, I think we say in English, yeah. uh, who had gained their freedom, who were hired or were forced to play the fiddle also wow. during uh, the wedding sometimes or other celebrations of the French-speaking people, as it was in English-speaking um, people in the South, for example, I don't know if you heard, you you saw the the movie Twelve Years a Slave, for example. Sure. But yeah. Solomon Northup was a good example of a, a African American fiddler who was forced to, and also was hired sometimes to to play the fiddle uh, in the white celebrations. Gotcha. No, that's fascinating. Now, in the second and third chapters, you move yeah. away from weddings and you start to focus on. Carnival. Yeah. So before we get too far, maybe you can tell us, for those who might not know, what is this celebration? Why do people celebrate it? What is it about? Yeah. So Carnival originated in Europe uh, during the Middle Ages. Um, so it starts uh, after Twelfth Night, or what we call Epiphany, yeah. uh, on the 6th of January. Um, and it ends on Shrove Tuesday, Mardi, Mardi Gras before Lent starts. So it's a big time of celebrations back then in Europe. This is what we call a reversal uh, time where you had many masquerades and parades where people would uh, costume themselves uh, with big disguise. Uh, they were also people, uh, for example, men were, were dressed as women, women were dressing as men, uh, people were laughing at, at the priests and, and all the um, nobility and all the middle, uh, upper classes people. It was a big time of reversal and, and big time of food. Uh, there was a lot also, of, I would say taboos were were not anymore. Uh, <laughs> there were no taboo at all. People were laughing. It was, it was big sexualization of, in the community. So it was a big time back then um, of celebration. So, and it was all throughout, throughout Europe at the time. Uh, even in England, uh, in, in Spain, in France, uh, in uh, Middle Europe, and Central Europe, Eastern Europe, that's it was all the same. When the, the Protestantism appeared in Europe, the Protestants uh, were quite against any kind of celebration, so that's why it became less popular in England, for example. And sure. this is why the English-speaking population knew less about it when they, they immigrated in um, in North America, where. Whereas the uh, French people, they were Catholics, and among the Catholics, uh, it was not yet yeah, priests didn't want people to dance that very much, but <laughs> it not it not worked very well. People were still celebrating all the former celebrations of the medieval time, so that's why when the French arrived in North America, they kept those um, rituals 
with them. So carnival was not the same as you can imagine the, in the winter with uh, the cold and sure. the, the ice, the snow in the San Lawrence Valley. So people adapted this carnival to the weather and the environment in which they were living. So back then in Detroit in uh, in San Lawrence Valley, uh, maybe you can imagine, but in Detroit there was a lot of snow and ice and even the, the river was freezing uh, and they had what we call the ice bridge which allowed people to cross from one side of the river to the other and back then as i said earlier uh, people had many horses uh, whereas in europe most of the the rural population did not have access to horses it was only the nobility who could have own own horses here in north america french people were had a lot of horses it was it's not rare for them to have one, two, sometimes even three horses. And they were very proud of their horse. It was uh, very important for them. And when they were meeting on the ice, as you can imagine, transport was easier in the winter time than it was during summertime. Uh, because with snow, with your sleigh, and on the, uh, on the river, which were frozen, you could more easily... Uh, go from one place to the other. So people were meeting on the, um, the rivers, and they were just doing many races. They were meeting <laughs> for and, like spontaneous races. It was very popular. So that was the I would say outside celebration of the carnival. It was all related to horses and races. And when they were meeting uh, among themselves, among French-speaking people, the competition was was harsh, but still they had fun. Whereas when they were meeting people from other origin, for example, English-speaking people who were threatening their um, identity or their culture, they were more okay. fierce. I would say fierce. fierce yeah. Uh, yeah. And they sometimes they could push people on the side. It was very, <laughs> it was very big competition. Yeah, sounds uh, pretty intense. So, yeah. so so they were using this time of carnival, which the time of re reversal, to um, compete against people at top of the social hierarchy, um, which uh, during the, the other time of the year they were not doing. They were very, very calm and respectful on the road with people from the nobility and, and from the, the bourgeoisie. Um, they were leaving their, the, the, the passage on, on the way when they were using their horses. But during carnival, it was upside down. So that was part of their adaptation to uh, the environment and the weather of, of, um, of North America. And also uh, they had some interior uh, celebrations. Uh, they had many balls. Uh, they had uh, where young people were meeting, uh, like the weddings, and it was supervised by the elders of the, of the community. Uh, where All those young people were meeting, they were dancing, and they could, the, this is where courtship was starting. And also, there were big times where you had uh, people meeting um, to just dance and have a big meal. Uh, they were doing at the end, uh, just before Christmas, uh, they were doing what we call uh, fire boucherie. So they, they were just making a big boucherie. They were killing all the, the pigs just before winter because they could keep the meat in the ice, in the snow. And it, it could not, I, I would say, it could not be uh, rotten. Um, the meat was very, very good, uh, so they could have meat during all the winter. So during carnival, 
all the um, when they were meeting, all dinners and suppers had a lot of food uh, because they had access to it. It was part of of the advantage of living in a country, a very cold country, actually. So all those balls were very important, and all those meals they were sharing among the, in the community was were also very important at the time. So that was part of what we call the carnival, the, the adaptation uh, um, of the carnival to people who are living in nor- northern country, very cold. Gotcha. And one of the things you bring up, uh, you mentioned it, you, you alluded to it, uh, was the fact that this was an opportunity for, you know, for courtship. Mm-hmm. You know, a fellow could go in there and try to pick up some ladies. But there was, like, rules. It wasn't like yeah. a free-for-all, right? You you were limited by, you know, almost your social class is what it sounded like. Yeah. Well, actually, weddings at the time was uh, an economical transaction, period. Uh, for any people, uh, for every uh, class, it was all the same. The parents wanted to keep their heritage and they didn't want to share with someone from a lower class so um, they were supervising love was not uh, yeah there was love but it was not the first characteristic the first thing that um, they were thinking about it was not the first criterion of, of, of choosing a partner so in those balls they were always uh, old people parents who were there with neighbors who were supervising and watching people and they were they want to make sure that their the the young people the girls the, the boys choose a suitable partner who is from the same class those uh, courtship uh, people were watching them so all people were watching them and if they didn't have a good behavior or they were courting uh, um, some a person from them the same class and uh, they would make sure that this uh, partnership stops gotcha now the fourth chapter of your book you look at what you call sunday culture yeah specifically with the acadians now what do you mean by sunday culture it goes again back time uh, back then in in europe sunday uh, since and the romans and even before as always big uh, has always been a very important day of the week. It was the, the day of the sun, actually. Um, and afterwards, when Christianity started uh, in Europe, uh, back then, at the beginning, uh, I don't know, third, fourth century, for example, they wanted to have a day uh, different for Christians, very important. Um, and they started to use Sunday uh, because this is the day that Jesus Christ uh, resurrected. It was also the day of the sun uh, in pagan societies. So that's why they decided, decided to do their their uh, what's a holy day uh, on Sunday. And because it was a holy day, that means people were not working. They should they, sh- they were not allowed to work by the church. And if people don't work, well, that means they have free time. When people have free time, well, you might. Yeah, you work, you go to church, and <laughs> you're supposed to to pray and everything. But also, this is a time for leisure. Sure. And and all people in Europe back then in the Middle Ages were just having fun on Sundays. It was a time where the community would gather around the church, and even in the cemeteries, and they were just dancing. There were uh, many what we call um, fair trade uh, 
uh, trade fairs, sorry, trade fairs where people were buy, buying stuffs and they had, they were, they were, there were fairs everywhere and they were having fun. They were drinking a lot and they were like taverns around. They were going over there um, and the church, as you can imagine, and also the civil government were not very, were not very interested in this. They were sure. trying to do everything to stop this. It, when the Protestant church started, it was even it was even more important for them to make sure that Sunday became a very holiday and that people respect this. It was even more important for the Puritans uh, in New England, for example. So that's why Sunday uh, in the States was not that popular for leisure back then. Uh, it was, uh, though, in, in uh, the southern colonies, for example, in Carolina, uh, north and south in Virginia, people were having fun on Sundays because it was not Puritans over there. But for Catholics, the church tried to make sure people were giving time to, to God and everything, but it was very difficult for them to avoid and prevent all the dances and the drinking and everything. So that's why uh, when people came to North America, they, again, they kept those uh, traditions. And uh, Sunday was very big, festive, uh, popular day back then in, in the days um, for all Catholics and French-speaking people. So that's why uh, it was uh, w the, the most known weekly, uh, the, the most well-known uh, weekly uh, day uh, that people were celebrating every Sunday. And I decided to look at the evolution of, of how people were celebrating on Sunday in Louisiana, um, more, more precisely to the I look at the Acadians because I have many sources on this. And from what I saw is that at the beginning, when the uh, Acadians came to uh, Louisiana, there were not many priests. Uh, the church was not very uh, well established over there. In many communities, people didn't have access to a priest. Like maybe they had to walk hours on oh, Sunday wow. to just get to uh, a church. So the control, the church control was, was not very high. So people kept um, all those balls, uh, what we call house balls, sure. uh, not the maison in French. Yeah. And so they used to meet every Sunday, and it was very important for them. And even though, uh, even for those people who had church in the communities, uh, they were taking advantage of their gathering at the church on Sunday, and because it was very difficult to move at the beginning in Louisiana, as I said earlier, and because they was they, they were moving in in boats and they were living on their land very far away from one from the other. So it was very difficult to gather. So they, take, they took advantage of their gathering uh, at the church. And when they were, the mass was over, they would just go to someone's place and start uh, a big ball and having fun for the, <laughs> the rest of the afternoon because they were able to gather because uh, of, of the mass. And then as time goes by, uh, the church became more powerful because they had more priests. Sure. And many new churches were built. So, for example, in the first cent uh, decades of the 19th century, people were, the church really had more control on the parishioners. So people decided to stop doing the balls after the mass. And uh, so they decided to, to um, organize all the balls in night, in the evenings, but still on Sundays. <laughs> um, because also they could move more easily from one place to the other and densification of the population was higher there were more people highways not highways but like uh, transport was easier 
here. Many more people had horses also. So that's why they could just gather at night and and in one community, for example, they could go from one place to where all the ball uh, was taking place. Every week the ball was at someone's uh, house. It was changing every week. So that was the first decade of the 19th century and in the middle of the 19th century. At that point, the uh, Louisiana church became very powerful. It was well established. Like all the Catholic church in the States, it was centralized back then in Baltimore. And they were able to have many priests in almost all the communities. Sure. And so at that point, the, the priests will insist of not having any leisure time on Sunday. So people are, were listening to that speech, to that kind of discourses. Yeah. And even though those who were not going to, to Mass, because most of people who were going to Mass were women and children. Most of the men were not going to Mass. They were really? not investing. Yeah, yeah. At the time, that was the case. No, why, why weren't they going? I'm curious. Um, because for them, it wasn't very important. And then like the priests back then, uh, it was attending church was not very, it wasn't always popular back in the 18th and 19th centuries. It was mostly women and, 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 and kids, and that's not only for kids. That was uh, almost in every Catholic country, from what really? I know. Uh, awesome. So this is not a unique case. Um, so, but because there were many priests, they were aware of, of those discourses. Uh, they could not avoid them. So it was becoming more and more important. What you hear in the, in the village, for example, you, you know that the church and the priest is more and more powerful so you kind of if you want to follow and, and be in good relation with the, with this powerful um, new social uh, power uh, you need to at some point follow what they're saying so they started to stop doing balls on Sundays but they didn't want to get rid of it so instead they moved the balls to Saturday night <laughs> that's a good move yeah can't lose so the ball. That's why today, even today, when you go in a key, uh, in what we call um, Acadiana in Louisiana, sure. the house balls on uh, all people think that their house balls were always on on Saturday nights because since the end of the 19th centuries, all those balls and I would say even since the 1850s, 1860s, the balls were were moved to Saturday nights and that's that's when they were having fun. They kept all the same. Dancing the same, they were having fun with music. It was still a time for courtship, but they just moved the thing, their their this celebration to Saturday nights because they were respecting more uh, the the church rules on for Sunday. Period. That's how it was working. So you see the evolution. How yeah. church became more powerful, and people were still again adapting their celebrations to the context of where they were living. Basically. I think that, that's awesome. Like, uh, you don't want us to have our party on Sunday? That's fine, Mr. <laughs> Priest. We're just going to move it to Saturday night instead. No big yeah. deal. That's hilarious. And, and also something very important again, it was very big white celebrations. They were, you know, there were many um, African-American people back then in Louisiana, sure. but they were not invited to uh, Acadians' uh, celebrations and balls, and they couldn't be part of it, and it was impossible to... Uh, think or imagine having a, a black person uh, who was beginning courtship with a black uh, with a white person yeah. uh, so the, the racist 
I would say, uh, agenda, not agenda, but men mentality. Sure. Uh, was Absolutely. Part also of French speaking people as it was for English speaking people. It's a very important thing to mention because sometimes people tend to think that French speaking people, the white French speaking people at the time, were more uh, tolerant towards the African. Americans, but that wasn't the case at all. And with the, there was in the 19, in the 18, at the end of the 1850s, beginning of the 1860s, just before uh, the Civil War, they there were some what we call committee de vigilance, so vigilance committees. Yes. Uh, yep. Which you had a lot also everywhere in the states at the time, and they were targeting most of, of black people and white people who were uh, helping black people. So that, that was uh, part of all white um, populations, uh, whatever the language they were speaking. In the final chapter, um, you talk about May Day. Yeah. Now, this is going to be new to a lot of people, I think. Uh, yeah. maybe, maybe what is May Day? Uh, you talk yeah. specifically about how it evolved over time. Uh, yeah. So maybe you could talk about that for us. Yeah. So May Day, again, we go back to uh, Middle Ages, even before. Uh, May Day, so the first day of May, was a big day of celebration and of uh, beginning of spring. It was, so it was a day of what we call renaissance. Renaissance, uh, I think uh, you use that word in English. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so it was like a, re a, a rebirth. rebirth. Yeah, rebirth day. Uh, so it was the beginning of new season. So all nature was going coming back uh, from winter. Uh, it was also a time for people to just gather, uh, coming out of, of winter. So there were many traditions uh, in Europe uh, during the Middle Ages. For example, men would bring flowers uh, to the to house doors of uh, young women, uh, of girls. That was a good example of starting courtship back then also. It was to send a message. Different flowers had a different meaning. Uh, if you like the girl, if you did not like the girl, sometimes it was could be a bit uh, mean. <laughs> <laughs> so that was very popular in France, for example, but also in Great Britain and many other European countries. And also you had what we call uh, made it with poles. Um, so people were planting big poles, so trees, they were cutting all the branches, getting rid of all the leaves, and they were planting those posts. Uh, in England, for example, and then uh, they, they would plant the post in front of someone very important in the community. They were doing this in France too, uh, to, to acknowledge the, um, the power of that person. And there was a big, big, big celebration after they were planting that post, that tree, uh, that tree. And they were some, then in, in England, which was very popular, were dancing around the pole. I know that in the States, uh, this tradition was revived at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, and people thought in the States that this is a very long tradition, but actually this tradition never existed in the States. Just uh, decided to uh, bring back something from England which never took really place, never really took place in the States. Um, but that was very popular in England, so they were having fun, drinking, and they were eating, dancing. And in France, actually, they were not dancing around the pole, <laughs> as it was uh, in England, um, but they were just planting the tree in front of, of, of a, some, someone very important in the community. It could be uh, what we call the seigneur. Yeah, uh, sure. It would be the local priest or 
just uh, a very the notary, for example. Yeah, uh, and in New France, this tradition was transferred to the Saint Lawrence Valley, only the Saint Lawrence Valley, because at first it was linked with the signal system, and the signal system was only implemented in the Saint Lawrence Valley. It never. Uh, it was not established uh, the same way. It, it was the seigneur system in Detroit, but there was no real seigneur. It was the king who was the seigneur. So there was no seigneur back then. And in Acadia and in um, Louisiana and in, in the Illinois country, there was no seigneurial system at all. So in the Saint Star Valley, you had seigneuries, and there was a person at the head of that seigneurie, it was the seigneur. And the singer was giving lands to people who were called the sensitaires. I don't remember that word in English. That's fine. Uh, so that was the people who were uh, were giving land, and the singer was forcing uh, in the contract when it was ceding land and uh, to the people on the first day of May to come plant uh, a pole, what we call in French un mai. So that, that was the name of the, of the pole. Um, in front of his manor, uh, and in exchange for that post, the uh, the seigneur uh, was giving food and and drinks to the uh, local the sensitaire in exchange. So that was kind Sounds of like a good deal. Yeah. yeah, that was we call give and take. So this is the theory of giving theory, which you give something, but you you expect to receive something in return, and this just implements and, and reinforce the social hierarchy of, of uh, in the countryside at the time. Because people had to acknowledge the power of, of the seigneur, which was some, sometimes, and most of the time, the most important person in the countryside. And in, in exchange, this person, the seigneur, was giving back food and drinks, showing his power, sure. and at the same time, showing that there is nobody who has that, his power in the countryside, and that's great. He's a good man because he's giving food and drinks. So that was just keeping. It was symbolizing the social hierarchy, and it was just reinforcing, solidifying this this hierarchy. So those seigneurs were forcing people, and even after uh, the end of the French regime, uh, during the British regime at the end 18th century, the seigneurs were still trying to force their censitaire to do that. But the censitaire were not very pleased by this and also they were so so some some sensita had tough relations with their senior so in the 1770s um there were some um they were during the american war of the independence uh so the americans wanted also to get the french canadians with them sure. and there were two invasions of american garrisons in the saint Lawrence valley i don't know if you your public knows about that but they came to montreal and they, they got also to quebec city and the, the, the British regime were afraid that people would join them. So after the conquest, they had banished the, uh, the militia. Um, and because they were afraid uh, to uh, see the, the, the Americans and French Canadians to be together, to gather against the British, they decided to, to, to bring back the militia. So at the head of the militia in every community, you had a captain. And people, the Sanstar had a better relationship with the captains because most of the captains were just very rich uh, farmers. Gotcha. So they decided to transfer the Mayday from the seigneur 
two the militia captains were reestablished in the in 1775, just before the Americans invaded the San Suarez Valley. And was uh, this was made to oppose the senior and to make them mad, and it really worked out. So this tradition from the at the end of the 18th century slowly was transferred from the senior to the militia captains, and it was not mandatory as it was before. It it became it was done on, on a voluntary basis, and most of the senior lost. Uh, the, the would say the um, the monopoly on this tradition. Sure. Uh, and that's a good way of seeing how the Sanstera and the, the people were taking um, advantage and were controlling their destiny. They had some agency. They decided to symbolize the, 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 their switch of allegiance from one person to the other. Uh, and they kept this uh, tradition. Some some uh, seigneur were not were very mad at that, uh, and some just also went in front of an attorney to per, to sue some Sansdar who were a part of of this uh, of of bringing the May the pole in front of their manor, and they lost uh, this this honor because this was a big honor at the time. They lost this privilege, and the, the militia captains became the main. A target and the main person who was uh, honored um, at the beginning of the 19th century, and it was done on a very voluntary basis. So the militia was a very important institution at the time. So they they used this celebration and this honor to show who, uh, because the, the captains were chosen by uh, the British government. So they started to bring the the poll to the militia captains, for which they. To the ones that they prefer, so they were giving now. They were choosing which captain was receiving. For example, the 1820s, 18, 1830s, they were choosing the captains who gotcha. would receive this this symbol of honor. So it became more, more and more important for them to show their appreciation of of a person. And then during what we call their patriots rebellions. Uh, where people uh, decided to uh, bail against the British regime in 1837-1838, and the people were choosing this honor to uh, re-establish uh, militia captains who had lost their uh, their mandate by the civil government because they were uh, they were cheering for the patriots. So it was it was transformed uh, the political aim of that um, tradition was transformed. It became used in a kind of republican way in the 1837-1838. In the and afterwards, in the 1840s, 1850s, the, 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 the ritual was lost uh, because it became more kind of a countryside celebration where people were just giving this symbol of honor to the militia captains who had finished their careers and yeah. who had beautiful kids according to them. And in the 1860s, 1870s, when all the militia disappeared, and because uh, it became a voluntary militia, and it was the beginning of the construction of the army the, uh, that we know today, it became just, uh, I would say, a spring celebration. And uh, there was no uh, sense of uh, honor and uh, re solidifying or implementing the social hierarchy anymore. People were just gathering, giving a, a, a maypole to make sure they had fun, and it was a big community festivity with drinks uh, and a lot of food. Wow. 
well, I, that's pretty interesting that they chose this May celebration as kind of a way to acknowledge who the most important person in that community at that time was. I mean, they got to yeah. carry a ton of prestige. That's awesome. But so we're, we're kind of winding up. We can go on. This has been super interesting. Like you said, I haven't heard any of this story prior uh, to connecting with you. So that's been way, way fun. Uh, but before we go, I did want to ask, because one thing we like to talk about a lot on this podcast uh, is about French-Canadian cultural identity here in New England. So I'm just curious, maybe on a big, you know, kind of a macro scale, uh, what role did these events play, these celebrations play, in affirming the French identity of the participants, or maybe were they used as a way to exclude those who weren't of French identity, or they didn't want to include under that umbrella? From what I discovered with my analysis is that those, what I call popular rejoicings, were very important for the French-speaking people to uh, show and establish their own identity. And this identity at the time was a white French Catholic identity. They were showing who they were, and also they were showing who was part of this identity and who was not. So that means they were accepting people uh, only from their own community and everyone from outside, if they were not white, was not accepted at all. So that means that all indigenous peoples were a big part of those communities at the time were, for example, in Detroit and in the Mississippi Valley, there were huge, there were big numbers of, of indigenous people. They were not part of the celebration. And it was the same, uh, as I said earlier, with uh, African-American. So and if either they were slaves or um, they were free, free people of color, um, they were not like, part accepted in those celebrations. And it was a big, big um, way for those French-speaking people, white French-speaking people, to show uh, that they were unique and, and also that they, they, were forging, they were forging their own identity by those, with those celebrations. It was a way for them to show who they were and who was part of their community and who was not, actually. So that, that was the main... I would say, tool of those celebrations and it was a big part of their identity. So when they were moving from one place to the other on the North American continent, for example, all the French Canadians who went to New England, where you are right now, uh, since the 1850s uh, until the 1930s, 1940s, um, those celebrations were still a big part of their identity. It did not change at all. Um, many uh, French speakers in communities uh, in Lowell, Massachusetts, for example, or any other place in, in New England where they established communities, they kept all those celebrations and it was still a way for them to maintain and keep their, I would say, traditional identity, if that's a good word. Oh, this is awesome. This has been super interesting. So again, Mikhail Dumont, thank you so very much for joining us. Now, if somebody wants to read your work, uh, where can we send them? Ah, that's a good <laughs> Good question. Um, <laughs> I just submitted my thesis, uh, so right now I'm just waiting to uh, get it, to defend it. Uh, that should be somewhere in December, and then at the beginning of uh, the 20, 2020, um, in January, the, it should be available on on, um, on internet uh, from the University of Montreal. There is a a, a thing called um, how is it called? <laughs> I just forget. 
it's not uh, it's oh yeah i remember now papyrus papyrus so it's it's uh, we spell yeah. papyrus yeah so it's it's spell uh, um p a p i think it's y r u s yeah papyrus and yeah. all all for, uh doctoral thesis from the university of Montreal are available on uh, this uh on this thing, uh, it's free, it's totally free, it's not available for anyone. So, uh, beginning of January, maybe at the end of January, it should be available for anyone who wants to get there. Uh, but uh, maybe I'm going to still make some changes uh, just before uh, <laughs> I, I defend it in front. It depends on how the uh, jury is going to uh, read that. But uh, I would say the beginning of the new year, uh, it should be available on um, Papyrus on, okay. on the web. So, that's what we'll do. We'll, we'll link. Uh, where they can find it uh, via papyrus, but it's because by the time we air this, I'm guessing it's probably already going to be on there. So yeah, we should that's be only good in to go. French, though. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's all right. We, we have plenty of people who read French. That's great. <laughs> all right, very good. Well, again, thank you, Mikhail Dumont, joining us and telling us all about the festival culture. I got to tell you, when I first started this podcast, I never thought I would have an entire show dedicated to parties. So this has been way fun. Thank you very much. Yeah. Have a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair To think that everything they love we simply do not share But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fclpodcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode.